This week on FX Guide TV. We speak to David Morin, Chair of the Virtual Production Committee at Autodesk. And Eric Nash, Visual Effects Supervisor at Digital Domain. And we speak to Rudiger Kaltenhuser, Head of 3D at Glassworks Amsterdam, going behind the scenes of a recent commercial. This and more, coming up next. This podcast is proudly brought to you by Autodesk, a leader in 3D design and entertainment software. Autodesk solutions help filmmakers, game developers and other content creators solve complex production challenges and create innovative, distinctive entertainment. Hello and welcome to FX Guide TV. Well, we got a bunch of emails and Twitter comments over our FMX coverage. So here now is a bonus extra episode recorded by the guys in Europe. Well, thanks, uh, Angie. It's great being here in Germany for the second year in a row. Of course, favorite of mine, beer, and it is, I guess, the homeland of beer, at least one of them. So I'm loving it. Another great aspect about being here actually was a big thanks to those of you who are viewers of FX Guide TV, readers of the site, as well as FX PhD members. We really do appreciate when you come up and say something to us. It's great to hear from you. And we had some couple great meetups with FX PhD members as well. But of course, the reason we're here is to get contact content for you guys and show you stuff that's happening here and a big aspect of that was actually the virtual production track at the conference. Yeah that's right and actually one of the people we talked to was David Marin from Autodesk who's kind of leading the charge in bringing together the different disciplines in virtual production from previs, art direction, production design and, and visual effects and David gave us a bit of an insight into what is virtual production. Well virtual production has, um, there, there are two main views on what it is. Uh, one is principal photography with real-time computer graphics. So it's the ability to see uh, a rough version of your visual effects on stage while you're shooting, either through a virtual camera that will give you a view of your uh, computer graphic world, or a simulcam that will give you a composite view of your computer graphic worlds with live action. Uh, both have um, applications in, um, in making uh, a much more iterative process uh, in terms of making judgments and changes to your visual effects as you have the full crew, the actors, the people that can make changes um, with you. And so it allows to make a better movie similarly to um, the way you shoot normal live action um, mm -hmm. when there's no you know, visual effects. Um, it's a way to compensate for the green screen being these big empty zones uh, where a lot will be added later that you don't see. Uh, it's a way to see something as you're shooting. So that's a narrow definition of virtual production. There is a wide definition of virtual production that says it's that, but it's also the new workflow that you need to put in place in order to do these type of movies. So that includes uh, world building, which is the first step you need to do if you're going to shoot on stage with a view on your wor virtual world, you need to build it first, which is different than the traditional workflow of visual effects where you build your world um, once you shot the plate. So one could, be, one could argue it's traditional filmmaking order process where you build the set. Exactly. And uh, there's a big parallel in virtual production with the traditional filmmaking um, before computer graphics. The part that is new um, in, uh, in both the big ten-pole visual effects movies 
and the big virtual production movies is the amount of data that is being generated. And particularly of late uh, with the introduction of the digital motion picture cameras, which are really an enabler of virtual production. Um, it was difficult to think of virtual production uh, if you're shooting on film. Uh, but if you're shooting with digital motion picture cameras, you're able to um, then bridge the workflow of pre-production that's been digital for quite some time with previs and the art directors using the, the tools and visual effects with obviously uh, all where computer graphics developed first um, but uh, if you're shooting on film you have kind of a dark zone in the middle and an analog moment uh, a discontinuity in your workflow in your data pipeline now with digital motion picture cameras the ability to do a simulcam and to do uh, this kind of workflow. Now you have a bridge and data can flow, can flow, but the amount of data being generated, and the complexity that it entails, uh, production management uh, becomes a, one of the challenge uh, that uh, not just for virtual production, mm -hmm. but for large digital visual effects movies. Because you've got the high resolution digital images and then mm -hmm. you've got a ton of motion capture data, facial capture mm -hmm. potentially, mm -hmm. camera data that goes with the facial yep. capture yep. and all. I mean, uh, what are some of the tools, what are people doing to manage, how are they managing that? Well, right now, um, at this time, very early days, and a lot of custom work is done to mm -hmm. manage the data. And so Autodesk uh, is a provider of the software, and the, the software that's both creative facing and to a degree the platform, if you think about Maya, the platform for uh, computer graphics in the motion picture industry. And uh, a lot of uh, studios, many studios have developed uh, on top of Maya a lot of tools that they need to manage that complexity. Um, and so there is an effort at Autodesk called the uh, Open Data Platform, uh, which is centered on Maya, to uh, make it easier uh, to integrate these new workflows uh, into, um, into a motion picture um, production. And uh, with regards to virtual production, Motion Builder um, mm -hmm. has been the tool of choice. Um, motion Builder was the motion capture tool of choice for the days of motion capture movies, you know, that were done in a, in a more um, perhaps uh, uh, disconnected way. You, you captured your motion and then eventually um, fed that into a post-production visual effects workflow. Uh, when when that went live, when motion capture went live on stage, that created a whole new set of requirements for Motion Builder. Mm -hmm. And um, Autodesk has been working closely with the pioneers who are uh, doing virtual production today, listening very closely to their requests. Um, and and, of and obviously, Lightstorm and Jim Cameron is is. There's no doubt that Avatar put that workflow, validated that workflow, and put it on the map as a as a, as a good way to make uh, digital movies. And so um, there are a lot of requests coming in uh, to modify the tools, and um, they are taking in stride. Uh, teams are working hard to. Uh, to make sure that uh, both Maya and Motion Builder work together very closely in a virtual production workflow, in in um, in a workflow that is as uh, artist centric as possible, and and you know for Autodesk the the artists um, used to be the animators um, and they still are of course, um, but now we have new artists, um, cinematographers who are you know handling the virtual camera that are bring bringing their entire you know, 100 years of, of experience with them 
um, and uh, directors as well who now are you know grabbing motion builder in a way in their hands when they're grabbing a virtual camera or a simulcam and are starting to you know have, have requirements. Well, David was actually serving as curator for the virtual production track, and I think he did a fantastic job of bringing together a lot of different aspects of from previs to post, and really a great quality presenters that he had here at FMX. Yeah, one of those big ones was uh, Real Steel, mm -hmm. um, which we've already covered in quite a lot of depth on FX Guide. We had an in-depth podcast and a case study article. Kind of covered the post side of things, though. Yeah, and Eric Nash was here again uh, talking about that. But in addition, what we thought would be interesting is to sit down with him and find out how virtual production really does affect the post-production process. Well, thanks for taking time to talk to us. My I appreciate pleasure. it. Well, I don't want to oversimplify the process of virtual production with this, but it seems there are two basic areas of capture you had, the fight sequences as well as all the other stuff. Can you right. walk through those two? Yeah, the fights are what we use all of the heavy technology for, all the pre-capture, virtual camera, basically shooting and editing the sequences during pre-production to, to give us previs that also served as a roadmap to, for shooting the sequences on location in Detroit, everything that wasn't boxing robots particularly was done using image-based capture, what we refer to as IBC, where on set with the actors was a performer in uh, what we affectionately referred to as the green jammies, tracking markers, and they wore painter stilts to put their eye line at the proper height for our seven to eight and a half foot tall robots. So those were the two sort of working modes for real steel. Now the IBC stuff notwithstanding, uh, that form has kind of been around for a while. You could use yeah. a stick in a tennis ball, worst case scenario right. for eyelines. It's how but ILM <laughs> does all the, you know, all the Pirates of the Caribbean. Right, but what would you have done for the fight sequences? How would you have approached that? <laughs> Without simulcam and simulcam. all of that, yeah. we would have had to do it the way we would have had to use IBC, so mm -hmm. we would have had to have two performers in the ring on stilts, wailing on each other, take after take, and that was one of the things that is uh, a benefit that sort of flies under the radar. Because we had pre-captured it, and it's now a playback source, you don't have a performer who's having to do it over and over again, and, and included with that the variability from performance to performance. Once Sean had a performance he liked, that became the performance, and we could play it back out of Motion Builder ad nauseum, and it's always the same, and it's a, always that exact performance that Sean liked. But correct me if I'm wrong, even though if, if you'd done that with them on stilts, wasn't the motion capture the animation different? Wasn't there, were there some scaling and joint issues there because were, of that? Interestingly, the biggest issue we found, and going into it, we thought, no, no, maybe it'll be cool having them on stilts because it'll give them a, a weird gait that's less human and more robotic. And what it turned out is once we started getting that, that IBC data from Giant, uh, we discovered that, well, unfortunately, what it looks like is a robot moving like a guy on stilts. And we actually, in some cases, had to throw out that capture data completely and, and keyframe the animation uh, from scratch because of the, being on the stilts did weird things to their balance and their gait that in some cases 
um, it was obviously odd mm -hmm. and didn't work and we would have to abandon it and just resort to keyframe animation. But to answer your question, <clears throat> without all the, the technology that mm -hmm. Simulcam uh, entails, we would have had to either just shoot empty plates, sort of imagining mm -hmm. boxing robots, and shoot a bunch of different versions and sort of try to figure out in post which plate would work best and then shoehorn that the animation into those plates or do it IBC and have guys out there boxing yeah. in the ring, paint them out, um, and go the, the painful route. And so it certainly saved time, but... Um, time and, and I contend money. I mean, there is a big upfront investment in all of this virtual production technology, mm -hmm. but I think it pays off um, in terms of production schedule, you know, mm -hmm. shoot days as well as um, sort of post-viz and spending all this time and effort figuring out how to animate the robots to fit into those background plates. What was the reality of the mocap for the fight sequences, usability in post uh, versus the IBC stuff? I mean, there was obviously way less tweaking, but how close to actual final animation were, were you using? For the most part, um, what I, the way we looked at the, the mocap for the fights um, was it was essentially blocking. I mean, we knew where the robots were going to be going. We knew what the punches were. Uh, there was a lot of work in terms of cleaning up contact. Um, because it was all choreographed and rehearsed, the performers often um, knew the punches were coming and would sort of lean away from them ahead of time, so obviously we had to edit all of that out, harden up the, you know, the reactions to mm -hmm. the punches, but there literally were only a handful of shots where we did serious, you know, from the ground up animation, where the idea of the action changed significantly in, in post, Sean said, you know what, let's not do that, let's do something else. In some cases we did post capture, where there was a new bit of business mm -hmm. When um, we had shot a plate, but now that plate became the playback source, and we captured to that plate. So we did that for a, I think we did like a day of post capture once we got back from Detroit to sort of change the performance on a on a handful of shots. But there's things you have to worry about in post with managing that data because you're generating. You've got to be generating a tremendous. I mean, you're always generating a tremendous amount of data in post. Uh, but does this huge amount of data? Um, I mean, a huge editorial undertaking. Mm -hmm. um, but that was one of the places where the avatar experience was so valuable because they had to develop tools. I mean, obviously, Avatar because it was almost a purely virtual movie had way more data than we ever would because they also had virtual environments. Mm -hmm. To, to deal with. We had a couple of big set extensions we did, but by no means did we have anywhere near the amount of data and assets that Avatar had. So their experience on Avatar having to deal with all that served them well, and it, it, from that perspective, Av Real Steel was a cute little movie with not that much data, although I'm sure it was terabytes of, of stuff. So the things they had put in place on Avatar really served us well and allowed us to manage that pretty, I mean for us at Digital Domain it was all handled on the editorial production side and the turnovers would come to us all packaged up and it was really 
easy for us and allowed us to focus on on what we really had to do and is that and that was make photorealistic robots to put into these environments. If you turn back the clock a couple of years, it seems like they're very much an island from previs to post. Um, there wasn't a lot of stuff necessarily that was transferable. I mean, are we hitting critical mass now where there actually really is a synergy between previs and Well, post? I think that was one of the, the huge advances on Real Steel, which was not, you know, an Avatar-type movie. It was a significant visual effects movie, but we had this beginning-to-end, continuous uh, entity that serviced the production from the very beginning. I mean, we started this movie in December of 2008, and, or 2009, I'm getting the years mixed up. Anyway, a uh, full year and a half before we finally delivered the, mm -hmm. the end product, and we had visual effects editorial on f for that entire run, and it really was visual effects being fully integrated into the entire production uh, process from beginning to end. So, we, I mean, we were a full partner, took on a lot of responsibilities that visual effects normally doesn't, you know, some of the stuff we, we covered in our presentation. But it was really what I think is hopefully going to be the future of visual effects in terms of because so much is done in the virtual realm these days, whether it's production design or, um, you know, this kind of uh, simulcam type production methodology, visual effects isn't just post-production anymore. We came on really early and I think it, I think that is going to be the future of filmmaking. It may take a while for there to be mass adoption of that, that paradigm, but I think it's, it's coming. Yeah, it really does seem like a brilliant case study for selling, selling that. But looking forward, I mean, what is lacking or what would you like to see moving forward to make that process better? Is there anything um, specific? I think the biggest thing is the willingness on the part of studios and productions to do things differently. It's like, well, we've been making movies this way, you know, forever, and they're a little intimidated by, or they do, they see, look at this massive, un, unaccustomed expenditure in pre-production. We don't have a line in our budget for that, so you have to convince the producers and the studios that there is value that this expenditure up front will allow you to shrink your shoot schedule, work more efficiently, put more money on the screen. Um, so that's the big battle is sort of getting the word out, showing the benefits, not just in what it brings to the filmmaking process creatively, but also uh, economically in terms of efficiency. And also, do the, there had to be some time savings in post. Does, oh, absolutely. But do you just then spend that extra time like other projects to make this stuff better? Or yes. do you actually shorten the deadlines? No, we had, I mean, we've had shorter post-production schedules. Um, Real Steel was also unique in that the release date was a fair distance downstream from our delivery date. So we had some some wiggle room in our delivery date and as we were finishing up and uh, the studio was so thrilled with the work, they wanted more. And because we had been on schedule and on budget, they had a contingency fund that hadn't been tapped. So they're like, all right, well, let's spend it and, and just 
do some value added uh, to a couple of sequences and just ratchet up the, the quality and the intensity of the imagery uh, at the end. So, I mean, it, you know, that was just another dimension of what made it such a terrific project was having that, that time and the willingness on the part of the studio to let us really, you know, hone the work and really get it to be the best that we possibly could make it. I think it was great to get Eric Nash's perspective as a VFX supervisor on how previs and virtual production impacts post. And I think in the past there's been a little bit of tension between previs and post, maybe feeling locked in, uh, not working as close together as they could. And I think that's really changing. People are really seeing the benefits of doing that. And Real Steel is a very obvious example of that. Oh yeah, um, that's that's so true. And I mean that's kind of the feature film side of things. Mm -hmm. But we've actually seen other uh, pre presentations here at FMX on games, music videos, and also commercials, John. Yeah, it's some stuff we covered actually on Effects Guide last month. It's a spot by Glassworks uh, involving some really cool, totally CGI application. Uh, 30-second spot dealing with origami and the concerns of doing that. And we caught up with Rudiger from Glassworks to find out more about their work on the commercial. Toiletpapier. Je wil dat het zacht is. Maar tegelijkertijd ook heel sterk. Edet is de perfecte combinatie van zacht en sterk. Edet als sterk en zacht een rol speelt. After we built the characters and we, we had the animatic uh, done, uh, the folding process we always knew would be probably the most difficult part of this job. And first of all, we just looked on online for lots of, uh, of origami reference and just folded a lot. Also for the modeling, it helps to understand uh, the, the shape of, uh, of origami. And, and then we, um, uh, like the first big challenge of the folding was um, uh, you, you have a strip of paper and then from that strip of paper, usually or origami is just always working with quite sort of a square pieces of paper. Um, and we had this strip of paper and we had to go uh, get, get it into the shape of the girl, like pretty much, you know, the, at least the main shape of the girl, get that done. And because, you know, with 3D, it's, it's everything takes quite long to do and, and you have to commit, you might, uh, you, you have to build a rig that would fold at a certain position, but we didn't know where we wanted to fold yet, right? So um, we, we did a lot of folding uh, with real paper. Uh, okay. yeah. So Martin, who, who uh, uh, took care of the first folding, uh, he, he cut himself from, from just from normal um, newspaper, he cut himself, uh, like he, he made strips of paper and then just went through a lot of different uh, um, versions of folding and just tried things out and, and we tried to see uh, what comes closest to, um, to the, the main girl shape. Well, it's quite an interesting challenge, though, however, because you not only have to fold an object, so in 3D you have to rig it to, to fold it, but then you've got inanimated characters and you've got to unfold it and go back. So that's quite a complex process yeah, to work through. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we were wondering how we do it because um, it's, a, it's a one sequence shot, so we couldn't cheat uh, with a cut. We couldn't say, okay, we have the animated character and we start unfolding the arm a little bit and then we have a cut and the next thing you see is, is a, a completely different rig. Um, we had to do it all in one sequence. So we for, uh, first of all, we planned it all out with the, uh, with the layout so we had a little bit of a better idea when things actually happen. And um, 
And then we first did the character animation, very straightforward, mm -hmm. uh, because we, we knew exactly what it had to do. Like the, we knew the character animation, what they had to do, and we thought we ticked this off the, off the list first, and then we have it, and then we worry about everything else later. Um, so we did this in two complete separate scenes, the animation for the girl and the animation for the man, and, um, and just wrote it out as a point of files. Mm -hmm. And we had that on disk, that was, that was done for us, and then we could worry about the folding process. Okay, so then you first had to start with the large strip and rig it up to get to the girl. Exactly, yeah. So um, the large strip, the, um, we worked it all, all out in real paper, mm -hmm. and we used a lot of, um, once we had the rough idea what we wanted to do, um, we used a lot of ice, uh, custom ice uh, notes to create this folding. So we had um, special ice notes that, uh, that could fold the, the, um, the sheet of paper once and you had an icon for every fold and this fold you could still move around on the paper and the fold would move with it. Um, and you could also still completely change the resolution of your mesh that you were folding. And you would end up with having at the end for the, for the first fold, I think we had like six or seven of these folding objects, but everything was still completely live. So you could still change everything around and, and tweak timings. Um, and you also weren't committed to any, any rig or any, uh, like the geometry wasn't built in a certain way to create a fold at a certain point. It was a, just a very dense uh, piece of geometry. Um, so we could just fold wherever we wanted. So how many se separate setups do you end up having as part of that entire process? Uh, the perhaps uh, perhaps uh, it's, it's a good example if I explain mm -hmm. it on the girl, on, yeah. the, on the first fold of the girl. Uh, what we would do, we have, uh, we have one setup for the, for the uh, strip of paper that would fold into uh, a shape that comes fairly close. So that was one setup with the, with the ice nodes. Um, and and that, was, uh, that was one object. And then at one point we did a takeover to other objects and we tried to make it as invisible as possible mm -hmm. so have the same shape. And we did a takeover to, um, to the girl objects, the, the actual the geometry. Rig or the um, in, uh, but in that case we had, um, so in the scene we would have had the strip of paper and the character animated girl, but we had a second set of girl uh, um, object in there, which had, uh, which had special rigs for folding it and unfolding it. So we would first use the strip of paper rig, and then we uh, would see the, um, uh, the, uh, the, the girl geometry with the folding rig, and then we would, uh, we would uh, use the girl with the point oven uh, files that, comes that came from the animation scene. Now, when you first did the object, you actually you did your animation. You have tight deadlines yeah. in animation. You showed it to the client the first time, and apparently, they weren't fully in love with what you had done. No, there was one thing like uh, a uh, very complicated, probably the one most complicated uh, transition we had to do was um, the girl to man transition, mm -hmm. and we worked a lot on this. And uh, we were uh, these characters; they were designed. In a way, we knew it was origami and it had to fold, but they weren't, you know, they weren't designed in a way that we started with a sheet of paper. We build a character that to, mm -hmm. to look good and, and then uh, worried about it later. So the, the process of folding the girl to the man was a really hard process and it took us, I think, two weeks till we had something we were happy to show the client and it was almost already the finished folding that we wanted to have, and they didn't like it. But you would have to kind of go through that, wouldn't you, to actually just even give them an idea of what it was going to look like? It was really hard because it was the clients, they have never done animation before. 
Um, so you couldn't just show them something very rough and explain, you know, all these things come later. They didn't have an idea of what will still come and what not. They could only really judge things when they were ready um, or when they could actually see something. Um, so with the folding, that was, that was really complicated to, um, to show them in between steps because th they wouldn't make sense and they wouldn't look right uh, when you just uh, uh, showed them something and you didn't have the continuation of the folding. And they uh, so they didn't like our first uh, approach and we only had another week for this folding uh, and we didn't really know what to do now. Um, because we thought, okay, what happens if we do this now? If we come up with a new idea, we, we go through everything again, and they didn't like it again. Mm -hmm. That was a bit risky, so we didn't want to risk that because also we came up with, with a very different approach how we, how we do the takeover from girl to man. Um, so again, we took our real paper and made a little sort of stop-motion animation out of it um, within half a day or even less, um, just uh, just showing the um, the basic steps we want to uh, we want to do uh, for the animation, and we made um, we made a little quick uh, time movie out of that and uh, sent that over, and um, yeah, they liked it. Uh, they sort of understood what we were meaning with it because it was very rough. Right. Um, and then they gave us green light and said, "Yeah, we commit to this. Please, uh, here is your week. Uh, after at the end of the week, we." we would like to see this. And so I breathe a sigh of relief, but uh, isn't that part of the commercials process that can be kind of difficult at times is the <coughs> deadlines and coming up with, you really have to come up with creative, fast solutions to get the job done, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. No, it is, um, yeah, especially on this one, the deadlines were really tight. Um, uh, it w we did work a lot of late nights on this one, and, and usually we try to avoid it. Uh, but uh, but it just we we really got into it and we we just really we really liked the project both of us uh, so we just tried to achieve the best uh, best results but it was really at that point where they didn't like something we worked so hard on it was really frustrating first but then that was the first thought then we went for uh, for lunch and you know thought okay let's have a break um, and but then instantly already you start thinking right. about new solutions and. Um, and also in the beginning, when when we started developing the ice tools for the first uh, uh, for the first folding, um, it seemed like it was quite a l uh, luxury to have. S I think we did uh, two weeks of just developing for the ice instead of going straight hands on mm -hmm. into it. But um, in the end, it really was worth doing this. Usually, you s in commercials, you you don't often take the time to do these things. Sometimes you just really get things out, you know, mm -hmm. just really quick and dirty. But in this case, it was actually really good that we did it, uh, that, we, that we took time for creating our custom uh, ice notes and, and, and do some R&D for this. Yeah, it's amazing how much of what we do is about problem solving. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, can you talk a little bit really briefly about uh, the environment set up and the rendering just to get the yeah. final piece? Um, so rendering is done completely in Arnold. We've been using this for... Uh, uh, a year and a half or two years now, and um, we um, the 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 film is actually set in our 3D uh, room in Glassworks Amsterdam. We have a little corner with a nice, uh, very big window, so a nice soft light from the side, and we thought this is a nice setting for the for the whole film, and it's very available for us. Right. <laughs> uh, we have a little uh, spheron setup. Mm -hmm. uh, we had that just lying around there, so it was also very easy to get the spheron image. We took a 360 spheron image and it's like one very soft light from the side. 
Um, and that was mainly the whole, the whole lighting setup for it. And then it was uh, really fine-tuning to get this paper feel, uh, you know, to make the f paper feel really soft and, uh, and translucent, so to have all this sort of light scattering uh, of the paper. And not to mention having a result of the client who's Toilet paper it is. Exactly, it's their product, yeah. So they're really picky about it, of course. Yeah. yeah, well, it was a nice setup in the end. You know, the light source, or the sun is a beautiful light source, mm. and a little shallow depth field, it turned out very nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, thanks for taking time to talk to us. I appreciate oh, it. Oh, thanks a lot. Well, that's it from FMX 2012. I think it's time for a beer. <laughs> I love how you didn't like all that, actually. Um, we really had a great time. It's a fantastic festival. Is it? We've wanted to come in the past, and this is our second year. Uh, great variety of speakers. The conference is really well run by the organizers. And frankly, you see stuff that you can't see anywhere else. So if you're in Europe, in the States, anywhere, it's actually worth the effort to come here. Oh, absolutely. And I think the other great thing was meeting FX guide readers and PhDs. You know, the part of that was really, really great for me. Yeah, it was. And again, a big shout out to the FX Insider members who are helping support being here. Uh, but that's it for now. Uh, I think, again, my beer habit, it's time to head for Vice Beer. And we'll see you next year in Stuttgart. Thanks, guys. And don't forget, if you like this podcast, you may also like our other podcasts, such as the FX podcast, the VFX show, and our digital cinematography podcast, The RC. Well, until next time, I'm Angie Dale. See ya. For more industry news, in-depth features, podcasts, and forums, check out fxguide.com. And for visual effects training, check out fxphd.com.